Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. The fight is growing. E equals MC. That all men are created About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Finding Your Frequency. We are here in studio, live right here in our Phoenix location in the air conditioning because it is blazing hot out there. Let me tell you, I got up this morning, it was 101 degrees at 9 o'clock this morning, um, and then it was like really weird, we're starting to get our monsoon stuff here in Phoenix, and I go to get in my pickup truck to drive to the studio, and sure enough, um, it rained just enough to make my truck look like it had been through like Afghanistan. I mean, it was just all over. So if you are in the Phoenix area, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. If you live somewhere in the South, I'm sorry that you live there because you are humid as all get out. We're only at 26% humidity, and I'm complaining about that. I looked at the uh, uh, at the weather, uh, you know, for like Atlanta, Georgia, because I was watching American Ninja Warrior. So I was seeing what the weather was like, and it was 80% humidity. I couldn't understand. I, I couldn't, couldn't do it. But anyway, so a little update for all of you guys as you're tuning into Finding Your Frequency. I absolutely love Arizona. I've been here my whole life, so uh, I'm sure you heard me talk about it a bunch of different times. So it's hot here, um, and if you're in California, stay in California. I love you, but stay there. And we have a great show for you guys today. We have a, a guest here in the studio, uh, Randy Cutts. Um, he's like the negotiator. This is the guy you bring with you when you need to some negotiations done, because there's one thing I'm really bad at, um, and it's negotiations. Generally, I'm just like, uh, here's option A, and here's option B. Choose one. And if you don't like that, well, I'll come up with an option that you like and there's not really negotiation it's more customer service right and I, I spend a lot of time just going hey well let me just make this right for you or let me fix this uh, when it comes to pricing stuff out people tell me I always charge too little and uh, so that's where negotiation comes in handy where you got to be able to shoot high and meet in the middle all that fun stuff and so we'll talk uh, to Randy about that Randy's uh, been a realtor here in Arizona uh, this region is particularly hard hit in 2008 I know I watched my house I bought it in <laughs> July of 2008 I bought my house in July of 2008, and in four months, my house was worth $41,000, according to Zillow at the time. So, Randy, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be with you, Ryan. You know what I mean about 08, I do. Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I got licensed in 06, right about the point <laughs> of the, the demise. So, yeah, timing is everything. Yeah. I also bought a Cadillac, right? It's <laughs> gas went up to four and a half bucks a gallon, so. I drive a Chevy Silverado. I know. Yeah, a 2007 one. So it was before they had any of those, uh, you know, efficiency <laughs> controls. Little, you know, the ones that shut down to four cylinders from eight. No, mine's eight all the time. And I, I flip through my gauge and it's all average fuel economy, 12.1 miles to the gallon. Oh, my. And I wouldn't change it for the world. I can't not drive an American V8. That's just my thing. <laughs> I love it. I just like American V8s and motorcycles. That's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, 08 was crazy. Um, I had this conversation with my wife, you know, we, uh, we bought our house for like $200,000, you know, which was a good deal, you know, like real estate was really popping. So I'm like 200,000, we bought a brand new house, you know, new build the whole nine. We're all excited. First house, uh, you know, uh, for, for my wife and I, you know, we had lived in a condo, um, like a tiny little condo. When I say tiny 600 square feet, right? Oh so now we're buying this house that's, uh, uh, 
2,100 square feet, you know, big leap of faith, get in there, July, we move in, and then boom, all hell breaks loose. And now my house is worth $41,000. And so my wife and I are having this conversation today, actually, and I go, you know what? If we would have waited like a couple months to buy a house, I had $24,000 that we had saved up for our down payment. I could have literally bought like a mansion in Scottsdale for that down payment, right? And I could have like a $20 million house and have it for like $900 a month, right, at that particular time. And yeah. so uh, definitely scary. But you live and learn. And you know what we did? We just stayed in the house and just kept paying our payment and doing our thing. And Good for you. And here we are. Yeah. So. You, you, not everybody had that, uh, that luxury. Uh, the hardest hit of that market were people that were close to real estate. They were realtors themselves. Yeah. They were s- service providers, uh, lenders, and title reps, and anyone else who serviced that ho- housing market, the housing market tanks, and anyone whose job is related <laughs> to that. And they started losing jobs. And, you know, we just helped, we helped so many people in that market. It was crazy. That's where I learned uh, to negotiate. That was my first yeah. real taste of negotiation because we were having to help homeowners as we talked with bank negotiators. They had the title. They had the skill. Yeah. We did not. Yeah. And I think one of the crazy things, um, like we interviewed a company, you may know them, they're just, uh, Silver Leaf uh, Financial. They're a broker, a brokerage for real estate, right? And so I had an interview with them earlier in the year and they were saying like the 08 stuff was so bad that like the banks couldn't even put all the foreclosed houses on the market because it was so many houses that were foreclosed that it would have dropped the prices of the existing ones even further. Yeah. Yeah, they were they were holding off. People were buying blocks of homes uh, from bankers uh, <laughs> as investment tools, and then and then holding on to them. That's what helped the rental market for a long time. And then thank God for the Canadians because they came in and saved our Canadian bacon, if you know what I'm saying. Well, yeah. So. When I think there were a lot of Chinese holding companies that did yeah. something very similar too. Yeah. Like on my block specifically, where. There were probably like about eight people or so on our block that when that happened, like, because every we all just bought our houses. So they're all brand new, right? We all just like met in the middle of the street, like in July. It's 115 degrees outside, right? And I'm like, hey, come over to my house. I don't know any of you people. We all just moved in on the street together. Let's have a barbecue, right? So we all started to kind of get into know each other. And then all the stuff crashed. And then like eight of the neighbors, they just walked away from their houses. Yeah. They didn't they didn't foreclose. They did nothing. They literally just packed up their stuff and left and went and bought another house before the other one foreclosed, which I know is illegal. They made that illegal after that. Um, And then, yeah, what what happened is a Chinese holding company came in and they bought all the houses on the block. And so now I'm in a neighborhood. My neighborhood's a good neighborhood. I have no issues with it. But what's crazy is when I bought the house, the whole idea was like, I want to live in a place where other people own the homes. I don't want to live in a place where all my neighbors are renters, right? Because (laughs) renters don't care about the community as much as it does when you own it. And I'm right in that scenario now where it's like three people on the block of 15 houses or four people are the only people that stayed there. The rest of them are all rentals. Yeah, it's tough. Man, it was a tough market. I wouldn't wish that upon anyone again. So tell us about how that negotiation, you know, worked for you in that time. But after you tell us, how did you get into negotiation, right? We got to stick to the premise of the show. Uh, you know, when we talk about finding your frequency, you know, you've been in, you've been in this business for a long time, like 30 years, right? Yeah, not, not specifically in negotiation for 30 years. But you've um, been negotiating I've for been 30 doing, years. I've been doing negotiation. <laughs> yeah, well, I have, a, I have a daughter that's 28 and a daughter that's 26. Yes, I have been negotiating for at least that. <laughs> I've been married for 29 years, so I've been at least least that yeah, long in negotiation, yeah. right? Yeah, so Not always on the winning side, t- I will tell, tell us you. Tell the story, though. Like, how did you move from, you know, like, your your standard, your Marine veteran, all that stuff, and you kind of move through life, and what? where did you go, like, aha, 
I'm, I need to I need to negotiate. This sure. is my frequency. Sure. Well, uh, first of all, right now I'm a I'm a I'm a negotiation consultant coach for Scottwork International. They're uh, Scottwork USA company been around for 43 years in this particular space and uh, it's exciting to be with them. I'll tell you more about that as we go. Um, that's what I do right now as a full-time professional negotiation training coach. Um, I, I probably would have to go back to the fact that I was raised by a single mom, five kids on a third floor of an apartment building in Chicago. Uh, I was the fourth of five, and so therein lies the bedrock of my <laughs> negotiation, right? Always having to fight and clamor for any piece of whatever you wanted. Well, and Chicago is, uh, <laughs> you know, Chicago is not like um, uh, 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 the easiest town to grow up in either. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough uh, area for sure. Uh, I love the city, but it's a good place to be from. <laughs> so I'll be back there in a couple of weeks, but it's, uh, it's a great, great town for sure. Uh, no, so I grew up in the city, uh, right close to Cubs Park, and um, it was a city lifestyle. And, you know, we, we, were, uh, we were poor, really. I mean, quite frankly, we were a food stamp, you know, family and, uh, and struggling. And my mom worked two jobs most of the time that I remember, sometimes seasonally at Christmas and so forth. She would have three jobs. Yeah. And so I worked that. I, I learned that work ethic uh, early on. And, and part of that is that when you know that you want something, uh, you don't just get it handed to you. You have to work for it. And in some cases, you have to negotiate for it. And so, so I, I tell Harry this all the time. Like, I'm not the smartest person on planet Earth, but I will outwork everyone. Yeah, yeah. And so that, <laughs> that carried me a long way. Well, my exit strategy was I joined the Marine Corps at 17. Hoorah. My mom had to think, yeah, my mom had to sign um, my waiver because I wasn't, I wasn't an adult yet, you know, at 18. Uh, but 17 years old, <laughs> I signed the Marine Corps. I joined, joined the Marine Corps, left when I was 18. And uh, that was a good exit strategy from Chicago, but it was really what launched me into, I think, a, a good career path um, that kind of led to a lot of things. There's a lot of things that happened in the Marine Corps. You learn a lot of skills. Let's, let's talk about that for just a second. Yeah. Um, so what's really funny is you and I have that very much in common. So my mom signed me away to the Navy when I was okay, 17. Okay. Right? And then when you say Marines, and I'm like, oh, Navy, Marines. So I have to remind you, you know, who gave you rides everywhere, Yes, right? of course. Because you well, know, do you guys know what Marine stands for? Do you know what Marine stands for? Yeah, I do. On, the, on the Navy side? So <laughs> Navy stands for never again volunteer yourself, by the way. Right? And Marine stands for my ass rides in Navy equipment, sir. Yes. yes. <laughs> and then well, you call me a squid. Yeah. Yeah, right? so, so, but, but here's the, the, real, the real joke is that we say that once, we, once Marines <laughs> learn to walk on water, we won't need the Navy anymore, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. No, thank, thanks for your service as well. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's a uh, – Marine Corps served me well. I had a great experience in the Marine Corps. Um, I was an avionics uh, tech on CH-53 helicopters. Nice. Uh, stationed in North Carolina, California, and Hawaii. My last uh, 18 months was in Hawaii. Oh, um, made rank fast. Uh, um, Marine of the Month, Marine of the Quarter, uh, Meritorious Promotions. So I was an E5 at 27 months. And then the Grand Rudman Act hit, <laughs> which was a downsizing of the military. And I had to get out or uh, my reenlistment bonus was zero at that point, And they just didn't give me much options, uh, no guarantees going forward. So, uh, But it was a good ride. I got on the Marine Corps, um, had some money for school, went to college, and um, that kind of launched my career. That's awesome. Yeah, I did exactly the same thing. I, they didn't force me out, though. They were just like... I was like, oh, I got this GI Bill. Wait, yeah. I mean, let me use this thing. Yeah, so this then, could help you. <laughs> yeah, and I went to broadcasting school when I got out. So, nice, I nice. never looked back. So, yeah, nice. no, that's interesting that we both kind of went off when we were 17. I graduated high school a year early. Oh, nice. Right, And then so I'm like, 
two th- one of two things is going to happen, right? I'm either going to get in a bunch of trouble before I go start college or I just need to go do something. And so that's when I decided I was going to go in the Navy. I had a friend of mine who had went into the Navy too. And at the time they had this, um, they had this, it was called the buddy program. Right. And so you could enlist with one of your friends and then it would ensure that, well, it, it was supposed to ensure that you guys stayed together, but that it was like, we went through boot camp together and then that was it. He ended up being a corpsman. So he hung, he went to Afghanistan and did all the uh-huh. fun stuff with all the Marines and, um, you know, did a lot of stuff with you guys um, you know he was mostly stationed with Marines as a corpsman sure uh, and then I ended up in avionics um, doing uh, two different jobs. Uh, I loaded bombs on F-16s okay. off of an aircraft carrier, right? I wore the red shirt. Um, and so that was part of my job. And then because I played with bombs, I started doing um, training for explosive ordnance disposal. Oh, yeah. EODs, yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I got injured. And then they gave me this choice. They said, you have two choices, Ryan. Um, you can Re- rehab here in the Navy and then we'll put you back in service and retrain you or you can go home no strings attached I had been in for two years and I went I'm going home yeah so I used my GI Bill because I had built that up and then off we went right and back to school so yeah that's awesome <laughs> yeah I, I I was in at a time where there was not a whole I mean Marine Barracks and Beirut they were bombed when I was in boot camp and uh, uh, so there was that but other than that you know it was really Obviously, before 9-11, I was in from 82 to 86. Um, but first, one to join the military in my family. I've had, subsequently, I've had a uh, brother join the Navy as well. But, um, but yeah, it was a good, good launch for me. And I learned in the Marine Corps, for sure, good discipline and, um, you know, camaraderie and teamwork. Well, and, and, there's, and there's a lot of negotiation that happens, too, not necessarily between you and your commanding officer, <laughs> right? right, there's zero negotiation yes, in that sir, respect. Yes, sir. <laughs> but like when you're when you're dealing with you know um, you know your your comrades, you know the guys that you bunk with, you know what I mean. There is a ton of negotiation that happens there because this guy has something that you need. It's you know it's almost it's like the jail yard almost, right. but it's not. Right, but right. Uh, very similar. But I mean, it does. It teaches you um, a, a way of dealing with people um, that I don't think you really learn anywhere else. No, I think you're absolutely right. I think the branches, all the branches, teach that same uh, core. Uh, aspect of, um, you know, it's not about you, it's not about the individual, it's about the mission and what the objective is and how you're going to accomplish that. And I have never found any uh, place in my career, and I've never spoken with anybody who's determined that they can get their job done without relying on someone else. And so you have to learn to work together. And mm-hmm. and uh, if you have good people skills, you're going to probably be a good negotiator like in, this, in essence. Like this interview would not have happened without my reliance on Harry. Of course. You know, Harry helps out with so many different aspects, you know, because I'm the VP of the companies. I have a whole bunch of other jobs to do, but I love doing radio. I've been doing it for so long, so I'm never giving that part up, you know, and when Harry's like, I'll help you book guests and do all that stuff, and it was just like, yeah, and you're absolutely right. You have to learn sometimes to rely on people, and then you get married, right? right. And then you're really like, you know, you're, you're intertwined with massive amounts of negotiation, yeah, no, no <laughs> doubt, no doubt about that. Uh, yeah, because you, you again, you have common interests, you have common goals uh, in marriage. You have that with parenting and uh, and with work uh, for sure. And and I found uh, Ryan, and I'm sure you have as well, that there are two ways to get things done, and you can push. You can force your agenda upon someone else and use, you know, authority and things like this, right? But in a in a contractual, transactional business context, if you want to have repeat business with someone and your colleagues, you're working within your companies, um, you do plan to work on a daily basis with Harry and other people, then you will learn to treat them in a different way and say that this is more of a teamwork, mutuality, let's get it done together and find right. a way forward. Um, because brute force could work. 
but you probably are not going to have very much repeat business with that person. Yeah, and you know that that idea is very similar to uh, like a topic we had talked about when like you're raising children, right? Um, there comes a time, you know, when when your child is like. Um, they they want to go explore, right? You know, an example would be like you put your kid in the backyard and you have a fence around the backyard, right? And then you're like, as long as you stay within these walls, you can go do whatever you want, right? That leads to curiosity, right? Sure. Curiosity will build um, the ability for a child to learn much faster than it would be if I give them a spanking. Yeah. Well, right? And yeah. then when you talk about the force versus the other direction, right? And it's kind of the same idea of, you know, making sure that you have, you know, a collaborative spirit where people can kind of go off and, you know, do their own thing that will ultimately get to the end result. But do it in a manner where they feel good about themselves. They don't feel micromanaged. No one's yelling at them, right? right. And that brute force component is not there. Yeah. So the motivation it becomes intrinsic yes. and, and self-motivated as opposed to uh, externally. And in the military, again, reference back to that, but certainly was taught in the Marine Corps that uh, you you need to do it not because you're told to do it. You need to do it because you're finding the will within you to do it. Even though, yes, you're told to do it, but <laughs> the motivation needs to come not externally, but internally. And that's going to serve you, I think in life and you know and I think it certainly is a is a value piece that you take to the negotiation table as well. Yeah. I never liked it in the military when the CO asked me if I needed some extra motivation. <laughs> Cuz that always meant some you know jumping jack. Yeah, so, right. Uh, what did they what did they call it? Oh, the front standing rest position. The front standing rest position. Yeah, yeah that would be um, half, half of a push-up being oh, yeah. held. <laughs> front standing rest position. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember sir, that? Sir, yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. 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 How high <laughs> there was, you like me to? There was no negotiating that. No, no. You, you want me to do 100? Okay, yes, I, I will do I'll do 101 if you don't yell at me again. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's really funny. Yeah. My son, is. Uh, he's actually a, a second-year um, student at ASU here in Arizona. Nice. And he's a Marine Corps. Um, he's a NROTC yeah. um, uh, Participant, if you will, with a Marine Corps option. So he's he's on that path, become a Marine Corps officer in two years, and it's just fun to see uh, from a little bit di- different vantage point in the <laughs> officer ranks and yeah. how they train them um, in terms of leadership and leading people and inspiring people and what you know that really is about. It's not about the officer, even though they have you know obviously they have like ultimate authority to make you do what you want, but they're trained to inspire you to want to do what they mm-hmm. want you to do. Yeah, that was actually interesting when I was in the Navy. Um, you know, you when you go through boot camp, there's actually two different boot camps. There's the enlisted man's boot camp, and then there's boot camp for, you know, officers that are coming on board. So in, in Great Lakes, they do them at the same physical location. But like, so my boot camp that's eight weeks long, and I have to go into a gas chamber and all this crazy stuff and learn how to tie 7,000 knots, right, and all those kind of things. Um, the boot camp for the naval uh, officers was only like six weeks long, right? And there, it was a completely different type of sure. thing. And, and you're exactly right. It was geared towards the leadership aspect of, you know, getting the people that are underneath you to react to you in a positive manner. Whereas you're enlisted, man, you're literally just getting yelled at to go do stuff. Right. Right. And then that's your motivation is I don't want to get yelled at. That's only in boot camp, by the way. That's not how it is when you get out of boot camp. It's yeah, a little different. And even, and even then, when it is out of boot camp, you're usually getting yelled that your NCO, my your NCOs, right? <laughs> the officer ranks just have a different mission, I think, and it's uh, yeah. it's interesting to see uh, the role that leadership plays for sure. 
So what are you doing now? I know you said that um, you're you you're um, a consultant for uh, Scott Work. What what kind of consulting do you do? I know it's it's negotiation, but what are you helping them do? Yeah. So uh, my day to day is uh, either in the classroom training uh, commercial training people with regard to commercial negotiation. So there are people that uh, you know buyers and sellers within corporations or leadership development within corporations. People find the need to hone negotiation skills, and usually because uh, they have you know factors that are driving this, they need a better price on something. They you know the external variables have changed, the market has changed, and it's driving the need to negotiate better agreements than what they're currently finding themselves in. Uh, a lot of times it's you know customer facing and it's external, mm-hmm. but a lot of the negotiations and the ones that I consider um, that are the toughest ones are internal negotiations. You know, someone who's wisely said that it's the water on the inside of the boat that sinks the boat. The water on the outside of the boat is doing what it's supposed to do. That tension, that pressure keeps the boat afloat. But inside, water inside the boat can sink the boat, and that's where some of your toughest negotiations come into play. Yeah, well, that's where, you know, like 90% of businesses, when they fail, it's not like, you know, they didn't bring in enough revenue. They didn't have good salespeople. They didn't, you know, it was usually like internal strife because people couldn't get along with each other and they couldn't, you know, get on the same page and, you know, work towards a common initiative. Yeah, it's defeated businesses. It's defeated marriages and relationships. <laughs> it's defeated countries and empires. So, uh, yeah, we have to figure that out. And I think you know, negotiation is interesting. I've always been attracted to it because it's a it's a people um, you know type of business, and it's a it's a form of resolving conflict with someone else. And I think ever since there's been two people on the face of the earth, there has been conflict and a need to resolve that and negotiation is a, is a, an enabling device to be able to do yeah. that very thing so Scott work that's what we do they've been around for 43 years they're a Scottish based company and um, they have been teaching uh, a, a methodology to negotiation uh, for the commercial space and um, and I'm honored to be part of their team they're uh, they're they're a group of uh, we say they're a group of misfits uh, <laughs> who who have this weird you know uh, love for negotiation love for helping people find a positive path forward to yeah. resolving conflict that is mutual and is win-win. It is a way in which you can collaborate together uh, and not uh, not force you upon somebody, but find a way in which you can give them what they want, but give it to them in such a way that it's meeting your needs. It's on your terms as well. And that's what we do. That's awesome. If you guys are just tuning in, we're uh, talking to Randy Cutts, the negotiation consultant, master negotiator, uh, learning all about the ins and outs of uh, some of the different things where companies are leveraging negotiation to help with uh, you know, their sales folks, their internal things, you know, and it's funny that you bring that up too. when you, when you talk about internal, like I don't do sales, but I do a lot of negotiating on behalf of the company for things like server agreements and, you know, uh, connectivity and telco and, you know, all those types of things. And you, and, you know, I find myself negotiating with vendors. Sure. Like, all the time. That's probably like 80% of what I do. I'm on the phone negotiating with vendors, you know, and, and, and it's, a it's an interesting task and it's a different, it's, it's different with a vendor, right? Because sometimes as a vendor, like, you know, I'm paying you for a service. Right. So sometimes I, as the uh, customer have a little bit more leverage, uh, in those types of negotiations. Unless they're the only supplier of that service. (laughs) Correct. Yes. And then that's when it becomes uh, a little bit more of a, you know, entering that negotiation. And I, that's when I start leveraging my NLP skills a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then, uh, that's, that's when pacing comes in extremely handy. 
Which leads me to my other question, right? Uh, in, in neuro-linguistic programming, and I know it's huge in Europe, um, I've done uh, a whole bunch of book on tapes of teachings for NLP and stuff like that, and I'm, I wholeheartedly love it. How, how to, have, you, have, you, have you gone down that road and how like NLP and, and, and negotiations can work together or, 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 or detract from each other? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Uh, in NLP, I think, is more in the realm of persuasion and uh, <laughs> using persuasive tactics to uh, accomplish what you want to accomplish and get your, get your will done, essentially. Uh, and negotiation, I see it as, as a different approach. Um, and this is probably the common challenge, if you will, when people think about negotiation, I say that most people, I say everybody negotiates every day. We just don't always do it consciously, uh, and therefore we don't do it efficiently or effectively. And uh, when we do find that we're in the middle of a negotiation, we oftentimes resort to persuasive tactics uh, as opposed to what I would describe as a essential negotiation tactics, because negotiation is about trading and exchanging things of, of uh, lesser value to you in exchange for things of higher value that your counterpart can give to you and vice versa. So you're looking for that mutual gain. Whereas persuasion oftentimes is just me trying to convince you that what I want you to do is is right, is the best way. The challenge with that, and NLP kind of fits into the persuasion world, it's, it's useful, mm-hmm. but it has a, a short uh, uh, shelf life because sometimes you're going to find that people are not persuadable because they see from their vantage point, their worldview, they see things different than you see them. So they're not open to necessarily being persuaded or if trust is at a low level, mm-hmm. uh, they can interpret your persuasive efforts, even if you mean it for their good interest, they can interpret that potentially as a manipulation and so it can serve you. Mm-hmm. And if you can convince someone without negotiating, you can convince, convince them with you know, persuading or problem solving and other things, it, you can get it done without it costing you more money necessarily. But persuasion is about concession making and taking. Uh, and yeah, so and it's going to cost you something. It's a fine line, right? Because you, it is. you you don't want to, especially in sales, right? As you're, you're you know trying to bring on a new customer or whatever the case may be, the last thing that you want is for them to feel like you're trying to dupe them. Yeah, of course. Because right? then you're immediately, like your trust level is already kind of just at, at the bare minimum, right? When you're starting to build that relationship. And sure. if they feel like that, then that trust level is gone. But I think persuasion fits. It's almost the same. It's two sides of the same coin. You're trying to get something done. Persuasion uh, is there at the table, at the negotiation table, but it's almost um, uh, a, a way in which you dress up your proposals. You know, you make the case, if you will, in a, in a courtroom uh, analogy. You make the case for something, and you're going to use a lot of persuasive uh, arguments for that. And this is all in your uh, Aristotle, you know, of, of logos and pathos and ethos, and these <laughs> things do come to to bear, right. but uh, at the end of the day, and I make the distinction between negotiation and persuasion because negotiation does come down to I'm going to have to give up something in order to gain something. And I, I want the $5 uh, in my wallet more than I want the hamburger that I want to sell you. And you want the hamburger more than you want the $5. And so we're, there's a meeting of the minds and we can have right. a mutuality. And that serves both parties well. So going back to your courtroom analogy, right? So you have the persuasion component, which is the lawyer trying to persuade the uh, the judge, the, the, yeah, the, judge whatever, yeah. the jury, right? Yeah. Persuading them that what I'm telling you is truth over mm-hmm. whatever the other person is telling you. And then negotiation might come into play when a verdict is handed down, right? Sure. And the judge says, yo, dude, you're guilty of 
whatever it is, right? And then so now the lawyer can negotiate because a lot of times you would go in and say, hey, well, you know what? Um, yes, he's guilty or before a guilty verdict is given, they could negotiate something saying, hey, if you plead guilty to a lesser charge, right. then we will stop this. And agree to this so many hours of community right, service. Right. And agree to, yeah. Right, and so the negotiation on that side is the Absolutely. guy goes, if I continue down this road, I could lose. I could go to prison for like a year versus if I settle and I negotiate now, I won't go to jail and it won't tarnish me as bad. Yeah, no, I think it's a good, uh, I think that's a good distinction using that analogy. A lot of times in a court setting, um, the persuasion that happens, it's too, uh, it's in an environment where it's really a zero-sum game. It's a win-lose, right? You're up against the law and the interpretation of the law and it's just going to render a judgment on you. Uh, one wins, one loses if you're going against, you know, a plaintiff and a, and a defendant. Yeah. Um, but in, in a commercial space and I think in a relational space where we do this in our business world in our context or work world and in our home because it's a it's a personal endeavor right to negotiate with people there you you really are looking not for a win lose it's not a sporting match there's not just one winner you've got to look for a win win and a, and that mutuality requires you to do some certain things mm-hmm. that if you had ultimate authority in a judge jury you know plaintiff situation or defendant situation, you can just render the judgment, force your will. That's just how it is. It's win-lose. But most of life is not really like that. No, it's and, all great. Yeah. And so we, <laughs> we do want to find ways in which, you know, hey, is there a way I can help you get a win? And if I have the power to help you to get a win, then I may be able to exchange something uh, and get something from you that meets my needs as well. The problem is that most of us don't do the work that's required in advance, and we find ourselves forcing our will upon other people just because we feel like we have more power. So the negotiation is, you know, for, you know, keeping it super simple is almost like a barter. Like it a tra- is a it's a it's trade, a you know, yep. like, you know, and we do this in radio all the time, right? Um, a company wants exposure for their goods, services, or products, yep. right? Um, and they'll say, well, we want to run ads, but we don't want to spend any money. Well, and I'm going, well, I like to eat. You know, and so let's let's negotiate on a trade, a barter where we'll run some ads and you feed me. Right. Right. And, you know, I'm just anyway, just, just super high level. But that's an example of like a, a, a negotiation. Yeah, it's an exchange. Yeah. You, you have to exchange uh, and make concessions and take concessions. Like my so. wife, she's, she does this so good. So it's like uh, back to school here in like a couple weeks. Right. And um, as you know, like now all the kids when I went to school, you just wore clothes in school. Right <laughs> now they wear uniforms even in public school. Yeah. And so which is actually kind of helpful for p- parental perspective because it's very easy to be like go get dressed right there's no you know you can't mess it up you know you can't have the kid show up with like you know purple shirt on and pink pants and a hat or something right we know that that's not okay because you have to wear you know a blue or white or tan shirt that's it so here's the colors you choose whichever one you want I don't care we move on but like so those clothes for example right I hate buying that stuff because it's like you only get one school year out of it and you go to Walmart because that's the cheapest place to buy the the uniforms and you're looking at these shirts and they're seven bucks a piece they're eight bucks a piece and you're thinking well i gotta have you know the kid goes to school five days a week um she's not gonna wear tan every day so i gotta get a couple of tan ones a couple of blue ones a couple of white ones right and by the time you're said and done you're spending 70 80 90 100 bucks on these clothes that you're only going to use for you know nine months yeah, or less because they're or, gonna outgrow or less, them <laughs> or they're outgrow them which happened to my daughter yeah. in the middle of kindergarten last year like she comes home from school and i'm like yeah i gotta get you her shirts all like her belly's <laughs> You know, the sleeves look like she shopped at Baby Gap. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but no, my wife, she's such a good negotiator because, you know, people 
people sell used products and stuff like on the services on like Facebook Marketplace and some of those kind of things. And, you know, those same people are going, hey, well, I have all this stuff that I just bought. You know, I spent hundreds of dollars on it and now my kid can't wear it because they're too small, you know. And so we every year in July, that's what, you know, it's a little game we play. Yeah. We find the people on the Internet that are selling their old kids stuff. My wife starts contacting them. She starts negotiating with the people saying, oh, you want 30? I have 25 or, you know, there's even been spaces where someone said, oh, I, I have to have $30. My wife goes, well, I only have 28, but I have this other thing. Your kid's how old? Nine? Oh, well, I have this thing in the garage that you're, throw right, this let in, me throw yeah. this in on it, you know? And so then these negotiations happen and then I come home and, you know, here we are completely all stocked and ready for school and the total cost for our family for that was $42. Nice. Right? Nice. Well done. Well done to your I wife. Did. My wife is amazing when it comes to that. I just, I, you know, so she's like the master negotiator when it comes to that kind of stuff for the family. Yeah, there are there's some natural, I think, <laughs> inclination that some people have, uh, and then, but but f- for the most part, what I have found is that negotiation skills, effective negotiation skills that carry you forward in you know large commercial deals and so forth, uh, is is really a learned skill. You have some natural. I think everyone has natural propensity to negotiate because you want something, right. and you're going to be driven to look for a way to get that. Right, you have a need. But um, but good negotiation skills, honed negotiation skills that allow you to do business and do repeat business uh, really becomes a, a learned skill or a refined skill because people have already a set of skills that they've learned through life in how they've navigated life and worth people. Um, but if you can refine those, you can perhaps – win uh, a great deal more in your negotiation. Yeah. One of the things uh, Jeff, our CEO tells to, you know, all of our, our, our folks that deal with sales and, you know, advertisers and all that kind of stuff. Like when they come on board is like, go read the art of negotiation, which is a book. I'm sure you've read that. Um, What are your, what is your take on, you know, like the premise of that book versus, you know, what you deal with on a day-to-day basis? Well, again, I think, um, a lot of negotiation that you read out there, uh, negotiation books or theories on negotiation, um, they don't vary a whole lot when you get into the theory of negotiation. Um, tactics is where things tend to differ. and uh, So the, the strategy is the same. It's like just how you kind of go about it. No, actually, I would say the objective is the same. Okay. But your strategy is probably different. Okay. And you might employ tactics as part of your strategy that, are, that really resort to a competitive, hard bargaining, win-lose strategy strategy. Um, and and there are other strategies that might um, be more aligned with a collaborative win-win type of an approach. I think both can get you to a win. Um, the, the real metric, though, in my estimation of a negotiation, of a successful negotiation, is not so much how much you won at the bargaining table, how much of the pie you got, but really the metric is whether or not your counterpart will ever want to do business with you again. And yeah, so, it's like if both parties walked away happy, right? Well, um, happy, recognizing, always use this as a sort of conditional thing, uh, that both parties got um, what they wanted. Let's call, let's call it both parties walk away content. Content, right, because uh, they may not not be happy with the deal. They may wish that they got more, but all things considered, and they did consider everything. They explored what could I get any more? Uh, did I have more knowledge? Did I have more information? Did I have more time, more resources, more money? All these things mm-hmm. could help you to win more. And so the assessment is: um, I, I, all things considered, uh, that's the best deal that I could get, given. <laughs> 
what I have in terms of time and limited resources or knowledge or whatever else. Uh, information is a key part of that negotiation yeah. process as well. So when you talk about different books out of the deal, other types of books um, on negotiation, certainly what, in contrast to what we teach at Scott Work, um, it's, it's really about um, enabling both parties to be able to get uh, some degree of their needs met. Uh, the, the, the variable in terms of, or the variance in terms of how much of their needs they got met um, is, is you know, based on the skills that they actually have or where they are in the power balance, how much power one party has versus how much, party the other, uh, how much power the other party has. When you look at that, if I have more power, I'm usually going to get more of my needs met. But also, if I have more power, I'm in a position to help you get more of your needs met because that sets up the grand bargain, the, the, the exchange, and that's what you're looking for. So I make the distinction. There's a lot of tactics out there. I don't think that all of the tactics are necessarily helpful. Um, sometimes, though, when you're dealing with a competitive negotiator, you do need to employ competitive hard bargaining tactics only to stop them from abusing the process and then yeah. reset and go to more of a collaborative approach. Yeah, just so you can get to some kind of resolve. Versus, you have to, yeah. yeah. Right. So um, I'm going to use an example of like a, a, a really low-level type of negotiation, right? We were talking about TV shows. So I watched this TV show called Fast and Loud. I like cars. Okay. Uh, it's on the Discovery Channel. Uh, a guy out of uh, uh, Dallas, Texas owns a garage called Gas Monkey Garage, right? So he he has a friend. His name is Dennis in the, in the TV show. And him and Dennis are always like, battling each other to see who can buy the most obscure cars, right, and all that. So and he he goes to Dennis's shop, and he happened to just have his trailer attached to his truck. And Dennis goes, well, this is a good sign. He's all, if he's got his trailer attached to his truck, he's probably wanting to buy something, <laughs> right, nice, because nice. he sells cars. Yeah. So he, 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 he recognizes <laughs> that. And they're walking around the lot, and he goes, nah, you know, Dennis, there's nothing on your lot I want to buy. And he goes, oh, yeah, there is. I just didn't show you everything yet. Oh, right? nice. And then he walks him over, and sure enough, there's a 62 uh, original Corvette uh, Limited. Um, so they only made 100 with an automatic transmission that mm-hmm. year. Split window. Split window. Yeah, split the window. I was going to ask that. So, and they only made the split window for one year. right? And he goes, yeah, all right, I think I found something I like. How many miles are on this? And he goes, you're not going to believe me when I tell you this. And he goes, 11,000 original miles. And he goes, you know how much this car is worth? And he goes, yeah, I do. And he's all, but I, he's like, are you going to sell it? He's like, oh, it depends on the price. He goes, well, how much do you want for it? And he goes, I want $83,000. And then he look, his friend looks over at him and he goes, well, you know, I'm not going to pay $83,000, right? And it was just so funny to watch these two friends have this negotiation. And so then the guy who's buying the car simply says, you know I'm not going to spend it for $80,000. I'm going to give you a number like $60,000, and then you're going to come back to me with a number like $75,000. Ultimately, I'm just going to give you $70,000 for this car. And then he goes, puts his hand out and goes, sold. So that's how their negotiation went, right, which was really cool because they were friends. And so, you know, that was one way of where it's like a very um, win-win-win for everybody in that space, Right. Take it on another perspective, and this is where I'd like you to weigh in. You know, a lot of people, and this is for our listening audience, a lot of people have jobs. They they work in they work for another person, right? And a lot of people, right? They they want to go to their boss and they want to say uh, they want to negotiate for increased pay, increased um, you know bonuses, or whatever the case may be. 
that when you talk about who has the power and who is in which position to be able to make those decisions, I think a lot of people um, don't know where to start when that when that happens. And so since we have a negotiation person here and we have a lot of people that listen to the radio show who may not be, you know, negotiating from a business perspective, how does one go about starting the process of negotiating for, you know, higher pay in their job or in their business to get them to, you know, an, an another level? Because that negotiation is not going to go like the negotiation with the dude who bought the Corvette, right? Right. right. <laughs> well, let me draw a contrast, first of all, because the Corvette, first of all, obviously it's a TV show, right? So right. there's made for TV, yes. right? So there's there's some drama effect and, and all of that that's in there. Um, but my critique of that particular negotiation uh, is, is I'll, I'll be direct, it, it's really – uh, kind of the worst kind of a negotiation that you can be in. Oh, okay. So while, while it seems like, and, and you can look, you can go back and say, well, they both walked away. That's they got their number. They got, and it landed within a within a particular bargaining arena or a zone of possible agreement. People talk about it different ways. Uh, so yeah, as long as it's in, with, it's within the zone. It's it's uh, meeting both parties' needs. That's fine. But if you're negotiating on one variable, and that is price alone, it's really a haggle. And um, a lot of times, what it ca- what can result, not necessarily always results, but in this situation, uh, what can result uh, result is uh, is is a win lose. I mean, it's two. It's basically the analogy is you know two dogs on the either end of one bone, right? So they're going to be fighting and forcing and pushing and gnawing until one party prevails as the winner and one is presumably the loser. Um, because they're friends, because they already have a number in mind, what they're willing to part with and so forth, you do have this midpoint rule. There's an offer. There's a counter offer. Mm-hmm. There's sort of settling into the middle. And that middle is reasonable. It falls within uh, a, an objective value. And those things do sometimes work out. Um, most negotiations, though, I would not counsel someone to just go in and negotiate on one variable alone because there's other things, even in the car analogy, and I'll bring this into you know the, the salary negotiation, but um, what else would be there? Like, um, will you pay for my uh, the, the trip back home, the gas that I'm going to incur for the trip back home? Will you, you know, give me, um, will you cover the insurance on this vehicle during this period of time of transportation? There's other... Or there might be, the, uh, actually, that's funny that you bring yeah. that up. So the ignition switch was broken sure. on the car, yeah. right? And they had to start the car with a screwdriver because the ignition, and it was funny. The guy's like, I have the ignition switch in here. And here's what's funny. When he bought the car and he ended up, he didn't end up with the ignition switch. Yeah, he had to so, go buy another ignition yeah, switch yeah, so, when he was rebuilding the car back at the shop so he should have been That's like right. well give me the ignition what else? switch right? what else yeah. is there what else is there that, that is a you good can? point yeah because what it does those are um, those are items elements that you can concede on or make demands on and trade for in order to protect your price right so uh, that that would be a better you know approach to that type of negotiation never negotiate on one variable alone yeah and I like that because if it's price on price alone then at that point you are just haggling over That's really haggling what it is. over and, cost and then whoever has more uh, more power again in terms of time resources Resources, money, uh, patience, all of that information, uh, they're going to be able to force their will upon the other side and and pull the bone away. Um, but in salary negotiations, you know, it's the same thing. Like, it should never become just about the uh, the amount of money uh, or the number of zeros on my check, right? What value am I bringing to the company? Uh, in exchange for that, what is the company able to to provide to me. And um, most of the time, people have other needs other than just mere 
um, how much is in my bank account. And so there are other things you can trade on. Sometimes companies are limited because they can, you know, budget reasons or departmental budget. They can only have so much percentage of their overall budget to salaries, and so they're limited on that. But what are there other what are other ways that the company could compensate me in terms of time, a vacation, uh, you know, pay personal time off, um, uh, recognition, send me to school, give me more education, certifications, um, you know, a better, you know, an office with a window, uh, you know, uh, you know, a new a standing desk, which becomes a negotiated item. You have to get a doctor's note to get a standing it's desk got these one days. Of those. Yeah, I so, have one. So these are. So, it is amazing, by the way. Yeah, these are the <laughs> other things that that you should be prepared to. Uh, ask for or concede on rather than salary alone. So you got to know the the value of your services. What do you bring into the team, right? Um, and and therefore you can make demands of what your compensation is worth. But be prepared for the pushback and and then look for other things that you can trade on other than just the paycheck or put a timeline on it. So maybe you can't uh, provide that today, uh, but maybe it can on the next round or the next budget cycle. So what are the reasons that the your counterpart, your boss might be saying no? Uh, evaluate those no's and how can you uh, get them to say yes based on adjustments in other variables. So, yeah, because NLP and persuasion doesn't work on your boss. No, it they, does not work. Well, they're going to claim, they're certainly going to claim, uh, they're going to claim limited authority. They're going to claim limited on budget. They're going to claim all kinds of limits of why they cannot do something. Your job, I think, as a negotiator is to um, set the table in such a way that it does allow them to say yes just on different terms. And that that's the negotiation. It's not not just uh, one, you know, bite of the apple either. You you come to them and say, you know, this is where I am. This is what I'm getting paid. Uh, this is why you can make the case. But those are all persuasive elements. At the end of the day, you're going to have to put forward some kind of a proposal yeah. that meets the company's needs, and you have to assess that. What does the company want? They probably want more production from me. You know, if, if I'm able to produce more sales, or if I'm able to produce better efficiencies, and whatever my job is, um, then based on that, would you be able to justify a pay increase. So there always has to be a trade set up in mind rather than just a, I'm worth more and you should pay me more. Yeah. And I really like that you you bring the point of, you know, not just having a, a focus on the monetary piece, right? We kind of outlined that with the analogy with the car too, right? Where, you know, when it's just money, you're haggling. I guess it's probably the same thing too, like in a salary discussion. If you're just there simply, you know, talking about the amount of money in your paycheck, literally you're just haggling about money like the two guys with the car. Right. Um, and that, no, that, and that is a good point, you know, making sure that, you know, you're, you're not necessarily leveraging, but putting into the mix, you know, the other, uh, the other bullet points or other tangible components that you bring to the table besides, you know, just the, Hey, I do this and you pay me this. Do you have time you for know? just a quick, uh, yeah, anecdote we, on this? We do. Okay. So I'll bring it back to real estate. It's really interesting <laughs> because they, the market tanked, obviously 08 and then it was coming back up 2012 or so. Um, a friend of mine uh, who's a real estate negotiator and, you know, told this story of a deal that he was in in California and it was so it was so fitting for this uh, example uh, his client is representing a buyer in California they're going in on a, what they knew would become a multiple offer competitive bid situation and they knew that they were limited and so they're they're back and forth they're getting kind of pressed for a higher price and so they're at the last round and again they're not the only buyer at the table there's others that are putting in offers and the seller is basically probably saying like you know Sunday at noon that it's the cutoff give me your best and final offer they didn't 
they couldn't ex- they couldn't go to a certain level. They knew that they would not be the highest price on the table. So he wisely uh, started looking for other value elements that might be of interest to the seller. And what they recognized is that in the yard was a beautiful rose garden cultivated for many years by the seller. And uh, so he looked at this and he thought, hmm, I wonder if this would work and talk with his client. And they went in. Beautiful. They, they put in an offer. And they put a letter with it saying, listen, we know that we're not the highest offer. This is as high as we can go based on our loan limits and yeah. what we can do. Uh, but And we're not sure this would be of interest to you. But what we're willing to do is we're willing to professionally uproot your rose bushes and, and have them transplanted them. to your new property yeah. and replanted because they're beautiful rose bushes and we love them and we'd love to keep them. But if that's of any value to you, we're willing to do that. They won the bid. And so it just it basically goes to show you that people do care about other value elements than just the, the, the dollar, right? So yeah. they want to know that it's within reason. It's a, within a range uh, objectively that that's a good price on the property. But that other value elements that meet people's needs and trigger emotional you know, drivers within people that they say yes to things. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good analogy. I had an instance where, um, you know, I had started uh, to, to do soccer with my daughter. And so I started to notice I work in digital. So I'm like, man, these the soccer clubs, digital is really bad. Like, you know, there's nothing in here. Like, how do you keep track of the schedules? How do the you know coaches communicate with people? Right. And there's like a ton of tools that are out there that, that do that. Right. And so I went to the club owner and I was like, hey, I already coach, right? I'm giving back to the guy. I don't, you know, you guys don't pay for coaches. You know, my daughter's on the team. I'm doing it for her. I'm doing it for the community. Um, you know, it costs me money. I have to pay for my daughter to come here, you know? And I was like, why don't you let me help you with your web? Like, you don't even have a Facebook page. Like, let's start there, right? And he goes, well, what do you want? And I was like, I don't want to pay for soccer, right? I'll still coach. I'll still do all that. I, I, you know, I don't want to pay 80 bucks a season for the soccer, you know, and uh, making a Facebook page is not very hard, right? Um, helping them with their website for me, super easy. Like this is just what I do. Um, and I didn't have to spend a dollar. There it is. I provided what you do. I consulted with him and said, this is where I think you should go. I didn't have to, I didn't have to find a service. I didn't have to update their website. I didn't have to write a piece of copy. I didn't have to do anything. All I had to do is just tell him that this is what I do for a living. I don't want to pay for soccer. Is there something I can give you so that doesn't happen? And so that was our negotiation. Nice. Right. And so we ended up to the fact where now anytime he needs something and he's thinking about whatever with the soccer club, he calls and he's like, should we do this? What about this? What about that? You know? And, um, and so now, now I'm, now I'm getting to the point where I'm like, all right, we've exceeded our $80, <laughs> you know? And so now I'm going to have to probably come back to the negotiating table yeah, and see so, what else hey, we're going to do. No, but, that's brilliant. but yeah, you know, there, it's a, sometimes the intangibles like for me and, and for me, it wasn't like, I, I have 80 bucks. It's, it's, it wasn't about paying the $80. It's just like, I guess I'm just that much of a tightwad. I don't want to spend any money. But at the same time. You're buying Walmart uniforms. That's why. Right? Right. Well, so, yeah. At the same time, I also felt like, you know, the rest, of, like there's 900 kids in this, in, in our soccer club. There's 900 kids. Right. And I'm thinking like, I'm having a problem communicating with my kids and my family, with my coaches, but with my kids and their their parents. You know, I'm, so, I'm sure everybody else is having the same problem as well. And so I felt like, well, if I can not pay my eighty dollars and also help everybody, and then, then we're all it was like a triple win. Right, you right. Know? So that was my negotiation win this year. No, and you said <laughs> something that's brilliant. Uh, it really is, right? And you said something important. You consulted first and try to find out what's important to the other side. And when you understand what is important to the other side, now is it in your power to give that to them, right? Right. And set up the 
trade, but you have to always put a put a value on uh, the concessions that you're making. What is that worth? And limit is say, well, I think that you know this. Let's just call it forty bucks an hour, uh, two hours of web service, or whatever it is. But put a price because otherwise you're, you're that that becomes an, you know Pandora's box. Yeah, you just get back to the whole give it and right. take a mile. Right? That's exactly <laughs> the case. So so you want to always uh, value your concessions. Make sure that both parties understand what the value of that is becomes important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, understanding the value is extremely, extremely important. You know, and I we got a few minutes here left on the show, and I want to just touch on one other item. You know, we were talking about value based pricing earlier sure. today, right? Um, and so we have a couple of clients, and there's a lot of people. There's a, a big shift for um, like time time based services, right? Like, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to work on your case for three hours. I charge $330 an hour. Here's my invoice. Okay. So that is not value-based pricing. Value-based pricing would be like, uh, I'm a lawyer. You have a case. Pay me 5000 bucks, and I'll, you're, we're done. Right, that, that's value-based pricing. Right, there's no nickel and diming, none of that. The so, but there's a lot of negotiation when it comes to value-based pricing because when you go into that value-based pricing, you don't know what that other person how they feel about the value of the services that you provide, and you don't want to go into there undervaluing it and lose money. Right, right. And so, from a value-based perspective, value-based pricing, how does one make sure that when they're going through and navigating value-based pricing that they're able to uh, identify the value on the other side so they can come to the table with the proper tools to do the negotiation in the first place. Well, it's to what you said uh, earlier, you know, in the consulting part, you know, the key part of negotiation is always about preparing. No one ever walked away from a negotiation table wishing they had prepared less. You know, they're, they're always wishing they had more time, more information to and prepare. I feel so bad for those people on Shark Tank. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm like, you are not prepared for yeah. that. No, no, they're not. You know, that's a painful show to watch as a negotiator, I tell you. Um, but, uh, yeah, so you have to you want to be able to value things in the other party's terms and value the concessions that you're willing to make in the other party's terms and if you're putting uh, a value pricing on the table for someone to consider for a consumer to buy something from you you got to make sure that what you're packaging is valued by them and you have to be able to frame your uh, elements that you're offering to someone in a way that they do value that. And certainly it comes from doing your homework, uh, using their language, using their numbers, using their reference points. So that, you know, and even giving them an opportunity to shape some of that will help them to value it more um, because they felt like they had a hand in shaping um, what you're offering to them. So, uh, but value is a subjective thing. Very much. And two parties don't always value things in the same way. And therein lies why sometimes negotiations don't work because you're offering things that they just don't value. And so you have to, in essence, repackage things in a way that does uh, sort of tease out um, their interests and addresses their inhibitions uh, or their concerns. And so if you can do that, it's, it's really an, an endeavor that is a, is an endeavor that happens before you get to the table or it happens away from the table because it's a preparation. It's doing your homework and researching that um, so that when you make proposals or you repackage existing proposals, you're going to be doing it in such a way that does meet their needs. And sometimes you offer something that doesn't meet their needs. Exploring the reasons why, you know, what, what, what do you like about my offer? What do you not like about my offer? How is this not meeting your needs? And just see if you have flexibility in what you're offering to someone to be able to meet their needs. I think some people don't realize that it's okay to ask those questions when Absolutely. you're, you know, some people think, oh, it's just a, it's a negotiation. And like, oh, I got, is it weird if I ask you what you don't like about it? And I think, you know, that's just... 
you know, something that I think people are literally afraid of, um, and, and they shouldn't be, you know, you have to be, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to make something up for us today. Um, so like in order to be a boy scout of negotiation, you must always be prepared. Yeah. Well, there you go. Always be prepared. Boy Scout, <laughs> Boy Scout terminology for sure. Awesome. Always be prepared Always. is essential. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, we've been rocking and rolling for 54 minutes. Didn't even seem like it's been that long. So I appreciate it, Randy. So what's next for you um, in the world of, you know, negotiation consulting? Like I, I know you're at Scott Work and you're a consultant for them. Well, where do you go from there? Where do you see yourselves in 10 years? Yeah. So I love the classroom. I get a lot of energy and I rise out of being in the classroom and seeing other people people, uh, the lights go on, the aha moments, and that gives, you know, pleasure to me to see that happen. But I also want to kind of migrate into more of a live deal coaching consulting role, which Scott Work offers as well, um, uh, because it's, it's, it's one thing to be in a classroom and simulations and talking with people, but it's another thing to be alongside them, helping them yeah. with their actual live deals. And so that's, I think, uh, a, a direction that I would like to go. I'm 55. Um, I kind of chart my course for the next 10 years when you ask that question, yep. and I'm like, wow, uh, 10 years, hmm, 65. I'm not a golfing guy. I am not, I don't see retirement as a, an, an, you know, out to pasture kind of guy. Yeah. Um, but, I always have something to do. Yeah, but but so I, but I enjoy. Um, chase the chickens. And enjoy negotiating. <laughs> yeah, we were talking about the chicken chasing. It is, it's funny. Um, I enjoy that. I enjoy helping people uh, find a way to resolve their conflict at the bargaining table. And That's when great. it's commercial conflict, I think both parties win. It helps um, more deals get done with less energy, less pain, if you will. Uh, and that's, I think that's something that would uh, excite me to be able to uh, do more of on the consulting and, um, and, uh, and the teaching as well. Uh, and I don't know if, you're in, if your listeners would be interested at all, um, but I, I, would, I know Scott Work has a resource, and this is sort of on the fly, um, but we have a, we have a, a booklet, uh, 10 Dirty Tricks and How to Spot Them in Negotiation. Uh, if it's of interest to you, uh, you know, they can download that for sure. Uh, if I give you a domain name yeah, or please say, do. yeah, so you, yeah, that's where I was going next. Yeah, I was okay. gonna be like, where can people contact you? Yeah. Find out more information. Give us your socials, your websites, yeah. all that fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. So my socials, not my social security, but my socials. Yeah, right? yeah your okay. social medias. <laughs> so I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, so you can find me on LinkedIn. I hope you'll connect with me, and and we can engage on that uh, in that realm. Uh, but for Scott Work, there's a, there's a website discover.scottworkusa.com, and then uh, I'm gonna do a slash. Uh, VA for Voice America, nice. right? All right. So discover.scottworkusa.com slash VA. And uh, with that domain, you can download Dirty Tricks, Top 10 Dirty Tricks on How to Spot Them. It'd be a resource I think that would be beneficial to someone who's interested in uh, negotiation because, and I'll leave it here, that um, there, there's a guy named Chris Foss. He was a hostage negotiator with the FBI. <laughs> he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. And I love this quote that comes from his book. And he said, the most dangerous negotiation you could ever be in is one that you don't know is happening. And so when you don't spot the negotiation, you're basically clotheslined using a sporting analogy. You're running down the field and someone puts their arm up and wham, right? So uh, the, the dirty tricks thing is that, you, you know, dirty tricks are only effective on you if you don't spot them, if you don't recognize someone's actually using them on you. Uh, and so you need to be able to do that. It's going to help you for sure not fall prey to people's, you know, wily ways of, of uh, hard so, bargaining tactics of negotiating. So that, that, uh, that 10 tricks is probably the first thing you need to be the Boy Scout of uh, of, uh, of negotiation is yeah. be, to be prepared, get the 10 dirty, dirty tricks, right? Spot you know, them. That happens to me all the time. You know, it, I always try to stay ahead of the conversation, right? Where um, we are like in meetings and things, you know, you listen to executives and CEOs and people talk and it's like, 
great. Where are they going? Right. Like I always try to forecast where are they going, right? Because a lot of people spend too much time on the minutia and they don't get where they need to go. Right. And so if you can spot where they're going, that'll, that's also, I think, very helpful in negotiations. Uh, Absolutely. Knowing where they go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. Guys, check out us uh, on social media at Radio Ryan One. Uh, and of course, you can check out the website, findingyourfrequency.net. Uh, you can check Randy Cuts at uh, K U T Z. You can find him on LinkedIn. And of course, uh, the URL that we just spoke about will be in the uh, description of the show for us. Uh, we appreciate you tuning in. Finding Your Frequency Fridays. Always love it. Keep cool. Enjoy the summer. Stay tuned for next week right here on voiceamerica.com, the leader in live internet talk radio.